My name is Henning Meyer, and I'm a visiting fellow at the Centre for Business Research. I'm Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Well, thank you both, Henning and Simon, for joining the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We're looking at Henning's presentation, Creating Shared Value, so-called CSV. Henning, tell us a little bit about how creating shared value works, both from a state and a corporation level. Yes, the concept was popularized by Michael Porter and Mark Kramer a few years ago, and it basically tries to redefine the purpose of a company around shared value, that is economic and social value, not just economic value. And I see in the concept an opportunity to better align the activities of companies with public policy, and by doing so, improve the problem-solving capacity of societies at a time when both businesses as well as governments are suffering from low levels of trust. So to my mind, increasing the um, capacity to resolve society's most pressing problems is the precondition for trust levels to recover, and this is one way, one potential way of trying to achieve that. Now you mentioned trust levels recovering. Trust is a very topical issue, whether it's in governments and they're considered to be incompetent, or whether it's in business for minor or major indiscretions, perhaps the pay gap or perhaps environmental standards. But do we know how trust plays out more generally across governments? Are there any surveys or indices? Yes, there are some surveys and indices, and one of them uh, I like to look at is the Edelman Trust Barometer. I mean, it's a very broad indicator, but the the benefit is that they are serving basically 27 countries, which uh, includes most of the Western industrialized economies. And you can see that across the board, there is a low level of trust in businesses, governments, but also in media and NGOs. And to my mind, what this shows is that the institutional setup of our societies is becoming fragile and strengthening this institutional structure of our societies, to my mind, requires recovering levels of trust. Uh, You you also mentioned other countries, for instance, the BRICS. Trust in Hong Kong, you said, was plummeting since the transition from the British government. Yes, I mean, the latest figures that we had from the survey indicated that the the trust level in Hong Kong was also quite low. Uh, What the specific reasons for that level in Hong Kong are, I don't know. You can have a guess that maybe it's the increasing influence of mainland China playing a role there, for instance. But it would be down to, uh, I think, a bit more detailed analysis on the specific case in Hong Kong. Now, Simon, you commented that trust in the middle-income countries and, and in the BRICS was holding up, and they scored well, um, the Netherlands too. Do we know why that is? Well, leaving aside the case of Hong Kong, uh, also, of course, in the sense of middle-income country or part of one, it was interesting to see the very high levels of trust in both government and business in countries like India and Indonesia, as as well as in China. And these were all very fast-growing economies, which may account for the greater confidence that people are expressing in in government and in business, and also, as we were discussing in the seminar, these are also societies in which government and business are quite closely linked with each other and maybe complement each other. There's a message here, perhaps, for the West. We need to think about trust in government and trust in business as possibly complementary. Distrust in both appears to be growing. Why is that? We are not necessarily, I think, here trying to mimic BRICS or or middle-income economies, which are at a different point in their economic development. But I think that the West does have some questions to answer. We need to reflect deeply on why it is that despite, in many respects, the global northern societies and economies 
still being tremendously successful and enjoying high levels of growth, notwithstanding the effects of the financial crisis. Why is trust so low? Do you want to try and answer that, Henning? Uh, no, I want to add a point. The interesting way of looking at this, obviously, is where the, the countries, or some of the countries, where business trust and government trust uh, is high, is not just where um, the two are very related, but they also tend to be authoritarian states, some of them at least. So the question for us would be, uh, how could you, for instance, by implementing a creating shared value approach, do a similar sort of mission-oriented uh, combination of uh, a more harmonious relationship between businesses and government without going down a more authoritarian, authoritarian route. So uh, how can you replicate the strengths without the weaknesses in that sense? So that would be an interesting question. Well, let me ask you, how can you? How can you draw the interests of governments who may be good at implementing public policy, but they may not be good at implementing the bills and laws that they have, with the interests of corporates who may be transgressing some values that consumers would like them to hold, for instance, equal pay or paying their taxes, as in, in the case, or even with Uber, playing their employees the proper rate for the job and giving them the defined benefits they should have. But can you really draw the interests of corporations and the state together in this way? Well, to my mind, this really depends on whether companies are actually serious about implementing shared value. Because the concept, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, includes, or basically the core is, that the whole purpose of a company should be redefined. So creating sh social value on top of economic value would be foundational for a company, if that is really the case. Then you can try to combine in a more efficient manner the micro-macro approach that businesses have from a sort of individual point, business point of view, outward looking into society, with the macro-micro approach of public policy, taking sort of a bird's eye view, policy view to start with, and then looking into sort of what the individual component can do towards uh, solving some of the biggest social problem. I think these two perspectives can then be better aligned in pursuing the biggest social problems. And at the same time, breaking down these societal challenges into missions, as Mariana Mazzucato said in her uh, sort of recent publications, uh, setting out a new public policy framework, sort of not just identifying the problems, but breaking them down into missions, condensing them into units that then can be operationalized. That's the way in which you can sort of combine um, public policy efforts with potential roles that private companies could play. And Simon, isn't it true with CSV that you have to believe in the power and the role of the state, a deconstruct of what CSB can achieve and what it can't achieve would be cynical about the role of the state and the state actually not delivering on what it says it's going to deliver on. So how can corporations get entangled with a state that may be insincere in what it's saying and doing? I mean, is the role of the state crucial in understanding for implementing CSB? Yes, I, I think what, what, one of the themes that clearly came out of Henning's presentation today was that the original Porter-Kramer model of CSV has a very thin and inadequate conception of, of the state. And, and we discussed this afternoon the role of uh, new public policy perspectives, which essentially are about involving a range of stakeholders in the making of public policy and, and the making of rules for, for governing and controlling corporations. So this is a, a rallying cry for democracy, basic, basically, and in particular for local democracy. So we won't get um, 
a better alignment of, of public and private interests, I think, without a different type of state and some hard thinking about how some of our most basic institutions, for example, relating to company law, the way we define and regulate the company, won't get very far unless we, we rethink these. So on the one hand, business is an actor, business can change its strategy, and some businesses, we hope, will thrive if they adopt a strategy which more effectively aligns public and private concerns. We, we would hope that that would happen. But I think the government has a role in nudging and shifting the boundaries for this discourse. If that doesn't happen, then I don't think business on its own can achieve this. And heading just the cynicism connected with talking about corporate social responsibility or even uh, creating shared value, some people may say, well, they'll say they do it, but they're not really doing it when you dig down. Yeah. I mean, at least on a conceptual level, there is a difference with uh, creating shared value because for the first time, as far as I can see, the creation of social value becomes foundational to the company. So it becomes part of the company identity rather than what, in a lot of cases, corporate social responsibility has been window dressing. You can see that also that it's often part of the marketing budget. And uh, so these are indicators basically telling you what, what kind of function internally uh, CSR plays. The, the, the proof is really in the pudding in the sense that you, the companies have to be serious about that. This, this can only work if companies are really serious about creating social value on top of economic value. If they are serious, there are ways in which also public policymakers could reconfigure their approach towards those companies. If these two elements were to happen, I think there, there, there could be better public value creation, at least on a conceptual level. It is an opportunity. Uh, the background of the concept was that Porter, one of the key strategy uh, thinkers in the world, thinks that this is absolutely necessary for companies to uh, to prosper in the long term. So given that um, uh, high-profile people like Michael Porter put this on the agenda, there is a chance that this is being heard. What we discussed here at the seminar today was trying to uh, show ways in which if it's being taken seriously, this can be operationalized and as a, as a result, how the problem-solving capacity of societies can be improved and thus institutional uh, setup can be stabilized, hopefully in times where a lot of uh, institutional setups are crumbling. And let's just take three concepts or of companies that have fallen foul of what you might call social values. You had Google, do no evil, and then it had an upset over its tax affairs, rather a large one, actually. And then you had Uber not paying its drivers properly and not giving them holiday pay, a recent ruling on that. And then you've got Amazon, which is a, a large global company, perhaps taking over retail and more of our lives. But people not understanding where Amazon is based or what its values are, or really, you know, whether or not it's destroying our high street. Which of those do you want to, to take? But there's a, a lot of, I'll use the word again, cynicism about these corporate values because they profess to be one thing and then, whoops, they're actually another. Yes, I mean, the, the proof is really in the actual behavior of some of these companies. I think taxing them appropriately is a regulatory function of, of, of the state, and that has to be enforced one way or the other. I mean, eradicating the loopholes might be difficult, but maybe one way would be taxing them more locally where the business is actually conducted rather than where they are, their profits are being accounted for. So that might be one way. But 
I mean, it's also social value is in, in a lot of cases how companies act locally uh, rather than on a global level. And, and in that particular case, uh, you have to say that Amazon has recently provided an example for how not to do it uh, with the episode where the city of Seattle, where they're headquartered, tried to implement a local tax needed to fund programs to eradicate homelessness in the city that is suffering from increasing rents, not least because big employers such as Amazon help to drive up rents. So Amazon has now successfully campaigned against that tax and the plan, as far as I can see, have now been dropped. You would have expected from a CSV point of view from Amazon doing the exact opposite, saying, yes, of course, uh, you know, we are, we are part of this local infrastructure, we are part of this local uh, community. And it's, it's a success story, and we're a big part of the success story, but we do acknowledge that there are negative outcomes as well, negative social externalities, and we want to play our role in trying to address them. It, it played out differently, but, you know, it, this was not a CSV uh, approach. A CSV approach would have probably meant doing the exact opposite. All right, Simon, if we come to you finally, if we have a look perhaps at some of that problem-solving of corporations and states working together, Environmental concerns, plastics would be one thing, sugar taxing and obesity would be another. But if corporations do get heavily involved in CSB with their respective governments, wherever they are based in the world, will that give them what we call a competitive advantage? Do we know how it plays out on the profit line? Well, there's a lot of controversy about whether companies which embed, for example, corporate social responsibility, uh, let alone CSV, in their mode of operation actually do better over the long term. There, there is some evidence to suggest that a company can be more sustainable if it takes seriously its responsibility to uh, third parties, including tax authorities, including local communities, companies which treat their workers well may be, may be more sustainable. We, we know that there's not always an invariant relationship between good practice and, and corporate outcomes. And governments can shift or, or nudge positions here by the way they tax companies and the way in which they encourage benchmarking and measurements. They can affect corporate reputation. So I think that we're likely to see that companies and governments have different roles and different functions in this process. We don't see the blurring of the public-private divide that maybe we do see in some of the BRICS economies. In, in the Western model, there, will, there has been, there will continue to be this separation of the role of government and the role of the corporate sector. But I think that what the governments can do is to encourage um, types of corporate compliance which are more socially beneficial and useful and to be much more um, forthright in penalising antisocial behaviour, the creation of negative externalities, and governments have the means to do this. Often that would require um, some degree of concerted action between states to set international standards. So standards on, for example, tax avoidance, standards on disclosure, these should be international. And I think we will see in increasingly at the transnational, international level, initiatives of this type coming forward. That's what should happen. And if it, if it can happen in that way, then maybe we will see this, this virtuous circle being created, yes, between corporate compliance and profitability. So, Henning, the rebirth of capitalism through CSV. We've heard about the deconstruct and those who would knock this concept, but we've also had a lot of academic debate around it, and also it's spawned its own institutions. It's being studied seriously in schools like Harvard. 
Yes, it is. And it, it's, it's quite interesting because it links up with so many different uh, dimensions. I mean, uh, Simon has already mentioned there is some evidence that suggests that companies that treat their own staff better do better in the long run. So that's one thing. There is recent research suggesting that in order to attract uh, the most skilled millennials, companies need to offer more than just an attractive pay package because these uh, millennials have a much bigger sort of social awareness than maybe the Generation X predecessors. So it, it might be a function of also uh, retaining and getting uh, the best staff. If you think about intangible assets, I mean, if you think about it in a very traditional way, at least if you, at the very least, uh, if you're engaged socially and you help to create social value, you will have a brand reputation benefit that is, is not paper thin, but actually valuable in the long run. So you're creating basically intangible assets closely linked to trust and closely linked to um, issues such as reputation of particular companies, which could be a real differentiator also in market. So there are ways of thinking about CSV also in terms of really uh, strengthening the, the purely economic side of a company. But the discussion is so vivid and, and still ongoing, I might add, uh, because it links uh, up with so many uh, different elements of corporate strategy and what we try to do today also with potential avenues of linking up with public policy. I think that's right. We'll see how this debate develops. But it's, it's important that discussions of these types take place, that's right, inside business schools as well as inside law faculties and departments of politics, yeah. And at the corporate boardroom level, these discussions are going on. Yes, I think so. And I think also it is an important part, as I say, of business education. I think if, if, if courses are being taught on issues like this in the business school and if business school academics are having these discussions, that's going to be very helpful for the long-term health of business, yeah. And governments too, Henning? Are the discussions at that level, are they in the Cabinet? I'm not, not sure whether there's a cabinet because there's a lot of day-to-day uh, -day politics going on at the moment. But on the more strategic level, I would have thought um, what is interesting is, and I think there is also for business schools and also public policy schools, any type of professional school, there is a benefit of going forward because that intersection between business and public policy is generally not very well understood. I mean, traditional academia tends to favor silos, right? So where uh, business academics stay within their discipline, uh, political scientists stay within their discipline, lawyers stay within their discipline, and economists stay within their discipline. So to an extent, the professional schools, business schools and public policy schools, are breaking these distinctions up to an extent. But, but I think in particular in times in which a volatile political context is producing a very unpredictable external environment for businesses to operate in. It really would pay to have a bit more also in terms of teaching and education at the intersection of business and public policy. And that applies as much to, uh, to business schools as it does to professional public policy schools. And that's the really important role that the Centre for Business Research plays, isn't it? It does cut across these demarcation lines. Yes, and I, I, I think the sort of interdisciplinary research we've tried to promote over the past 25 years or so has to find an expression in public policy at the end of the day. That's absolutely right. Henning Meyer, Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today about Henning's presentation on creating shared value, CSV. I've learned so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie.